And so I wanted to give an update on what's going on uh, briefly before I get into this Bible message. Again, if you don't know who I am, my name is Kent Nolly, and I took off in 2015 to do the work that RMC had already started in Uganda. And so I'm in northern Uganda, and we started a ministry called Terebinth Ministries. And our passion when we were going out to, to Uganda was to equip pastors and leaders. Um, there are thousands of churches and thousands of pastors. There's like a revival going on in, in Uganda after decades of war, decades of war, starting with Idi Amin. That's back in the 70s. In northern Uganda, have experienced war all up to around 2006 or 7. And so we went to northern Uganda, and we found out that there are churches just being planted everywhere, but 95% of those churches have a pastor with zero Bible training. Zero. Um, they just get it from a, from a flyby conference that comes through on a weekend or whatever. That's their education and training. And I have a passion to teach people the scripture and how you piece it all together. And so we went there knowing that we were going to start this school with some local Ugandans that I had already established contact with since 2010 when I was taking teams with RMC. And well, so we started a school called Terrible School of Discipleship. And from there, this ministry just kind of has expanded. But... We started this school in 2016, and it's a three-year school, and these pastors would come one week of every month. They'd come in on a Sunday night, and I would have them in the entire week until Saturday when I'd test them out of the, whatever book of the Bible that we were uh, teaching. And after three years of dedicating their lives, one quarter of their life to us, to study the scripture, they have gone through the entire Bible, knowing how to use each book of the Bible. They test out of every single book of the Bible, and we were able to graduate this May, the first class. Guys, it's a huge deal for us. This is a big deal. And as you can see, these, these pastors are they're, they're extremely excited, and we're excited for them. We have another class that's been going on for over a year now. And just be praying for them. This class was a uh, graduation of 16 pastors. We have another around 30 pastors in this other class that's going through. And I tell you what, we have pastors lining up saying, will you please train us? Will you please train us? But we want discipleship to happen. So quantity is not really what we're looking for. We're looking for quality. And so now they'll be able to plant solid churches through discipleship. Now, as we went there, we weren't thinking medical. Long story short, we ended up with medical. And so we have a clinic. It's out what we consider the bush of Uganda. It's the village. And this, this clinic, we just got a, a new makeover. Um, and this little clinic sees about 500 to 700 patients a month. And we're delivering around 40 babies a month. So we're seeing a lot of life happening. And one of the pastors that graduated from our first school is now the chaplain. And we're one of the only clinics in Uganda with a chaplain um, that I know of. I've never heard of one, actually. But we want our clinic to be a ministry, not just a place where people can be healed physically, but also spiritually. And our pastor just welcomes these people as they come in. He meets with them. He grieves with them. He counsels them even in marriage and everything else because people just come in and just want to just talk to somebody. And so they go and see Chaplain Stephen. Uh, and it's just been a wonderful ministry opportunity, a touch point in so many different ways than our school is. Obviously, medical is huge, especially for a really group of, like, they're very poor people out in the bush, and so when they come here, they can get cheap medical care. And our motto is, we treat Jesus heals, and we want Jesus to be known when people come to the clinic. So be praying for that. It's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And we started up something new, the Widow's Ministry. Um, this is brand new, actually, this year. We started in March, and we have a total of 50 
There's not 50 here, but we have a total of 50 widows. We're looking to expand to about 150 this year, hopefully, or next year, going into that, that many in, in numbers. And this is the, really the cool thing, is I can train these pastors in the Bible, but now what we're doing is saying to some of these pastors, let me help you set up sort of a missions department within your little churches. And I've trained and I've invested in these pastors our team of people have invested in these pastors. Let me make no mistake. I have a team of people that help me. And we have told them, you select some of the poorest widows in your community around your church and find them. And what we're going to do is set up a little committee and you're going to be in charge of it. The pastor's in charge of this committee and he's going to teach them how to then go out and minister to these widows. And so there could be a, a committee of about seven or eight people within the church he's discipling and they're going and visiting these widows on a weekly basis. And we're also giving them food rations to help them out because they're probably making on average 15 to $30 a month at most. And so they have children. So these widows are, have the fatherless children with them and it's just an extreme burden if you could just imagine. And so now our church is able to then go and minister to these widows and what we're seeing is salvation is coming like crazy. Their neighbors are coming to the Lord because they're hearing what's happening. Our churches are starting to grow with these widows and their families. And that's the end goal, right? That they would know Jesus and then the church could be the salt and light to the community. And so our school is feeding into actually real-life practical things of going out into the community and reaching the poorest of them. Of them. And so it, I'm really excited about this, being a missions pastor myself. This stuff is exciting to me. But when I always come back, everybody wants to know about the, the chickens. And uh, we, have, we want to be self-sustainable. And last time I came back, I gave an update, and people were like, what about these chickens that you're doing and all this stuff? And... Well, we got, we've expanded into an operation where we have two houses that will, that will be occupied by 6,000 chickens laying eggs and they're going out in the community. And right now we're selling around 20 to 25,000 eggs a month. And we're going to expand to around about 75,000 eggs a month. And you're like, what are you doing? I want to be self-sustainable to a point in the future where we can be bringing money in with the local resources that are there. That just makes sense, Right. And so we want to be able to do that in the future to where a lot of the money that can run this ministry to train up these pastors, to help offset the cost of the ministry, to fund the organization itself can be done with the resources on the ground. But also it's an amazing discipleship opportunity because our Christian life also spills into our work life. And I want to see how they work. You can disciple people as they're working. And so we have a, this farm that's just growing and we have milling operations so the community are coming in and we're able to just love them. As the community comes in to mill their maize and they press their sunflower oil and mill their rice. And so this, again, is a different touch point into the community to bring Jesus. But we also want to be self-sustainable and hopefully by 2023 we are self-sustainable. So please be praying for all this. A lot going on. And you're thinking, Kent, how do you do all this? Well, I have a team of seven missionaries and over 30 Ugandan staff. And so I'm not going and I'm running around crazy over there. We're able to do this with the people that God has put in our path. So this is Terebinth Ministries. This is the update. Hopefully next year when I come, if I come back next year to give an update or in two years, um, God has done even more. Amen? Amen. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 4, please. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And as you're doing that, we're opening up. One thing I do have to mention is we do have a table that's out there. You'll see the Terebinth Ministries uh, banner. And if you want to get involved in any way through praying and getting on a newsletter or supporting the ministry, we're always in need of all three of those. And so you can grab a flyer or you can talk to somebody at the table. And I would love to meet you if you can uh, have time to swing by. At least grab a flyer so you know kind of what we do and you can communicate what Terebinth does through RMC. Okay? I'm going to... Um, Let's pray and then I'll, then I'll read. Father, I pray that you would speak in through me. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of your word. And I pray I would articulate it well so people would know you. They would know Jesus. They would know the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray as we talk about poor in spirit and what this really means, that you would just bring us back to the basics. Bring us back to our first love. Help us to be able to, to, to meet challenges that we face every single day in our little wilderness here until the day that you take us home. And you say you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And you're always going ahead of us. And you're always with us. And we, we know through Scripture that you want a relationship with us. And we know through Scripture that we're not good enough in and of ourselves. And we don't have the strength. And so I pray that through knowledge we can understand just today, just as a refresher for some and, and, and new revelation for others, that we would be able to receive this message and actually change and do something with it. And so I pray that my message would allow that to happen and also ask that you just continue to change my heart for you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verse 32, or 23, excuse me, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and he was seated with his disciples, came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 is going to be our it's going to be our, our, our topic here of being poor in spirit and what this means. But prior to me talking about this, let me just talk about, if you're new to the scripture, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that is like no other. As a teacher, you kind of have to, rev- you, you, when you walk into it, you just, you kind of in all in reverence because you've got to figure out how do I teach this. As you're examining your own life, you're realizing, I can't even do this stuff. And so it just humbles you as a teacher to be able to go into Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus takes up his disciples up on a mountain, what we call the Mount of Beatitudes, overlooking the Galilee Sea, and he just starts delivering this truth and this truth is something special. And when you, when you start turning the pages, you realize that he wants to include you in on something, this mission. And he's trying to tell you how to do it. 
But what I love about it, before we get even into any of this, I want you just to turn to the very back of Matthew chapter 7. And look at the very last verse in 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. You quickly read over that, wouldn't you? You just quickly just, just go right past that. All, uh, all the gospel writers have, and any writer of the scripture, to get your attention are words. They, it's up to you to paint the picture in your head and figure out, you know, if he's using this certain word, astonished, he must mean that there's nothing that they've ever heard that's been greater than this, Sermon on the Mount. They've never heard a teaching like, any, like this before. When we use that word astonished, that means that. There, is there a word greater than astonished? Like, and even in the English, if you were to explain the best teaching you possibly could ever have heard in your life, would you use the word astonished? Probably not. We reserve that word for something that is truly astonishing. I've never heard an astonishing message. I've never been astonished. I've been impressed. I've been encouraged. I've heard superb messages, if you will, but to use the word astonished. I want you to just appreciate what the gospel writer is trying to tell you because when you, after the Sermon on the Mount, these people were absolutely flabbergasted. Who is this guy who can speak like this? I want to draw the attention to Jesus and how powerful he was. He was powerful and sometimes we forget it. If you were writing this, what words would you use? And so they're completely astonished after this short sermon, Sermon on the Mount, that they don't know what to do other than follow this guy, right? And so when he starts this message, you can take this, this slide off if you will. When he starts this message, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This astonishing message, this is what he says. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's like a paradox. If I have the Holy Spirit, shouldn't I be rich in spirit? But he says that if you want to have the kingdom of heaven, you must be poor in spirit. And so we, a lot of times we hear it and it's true. It's kind of an economic term, poor. What do you mean by that? A person that's an absolute beggar, you don't have enough money to pay your debt. And you're begging the person that holds your debt, would you please forgive me? You don't have even pockets to pull lint out of to give to this person, right? That's kind of this picture, but it's even deeper than that. It's like you're physically incapable of doing anything for a spiritual purpose. You're blind, you're lame, you're mute. You can't do anything spiritually speaking. Physically speaking, you might be a great, strong person. But spiritually speaking, it's like you must be poor in the spiritual realm. A lot of times we forget how to do that because we're so physically fit and ready to go. We think we can accomplish anything on our own strength. That's not the way this thing works. And so as you're getting into the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to address things like, don't resist an evil person. If an evil person tells you to take this thing one mile, you take it two. That's that boss at your work center that you cannot stand and he's abusing you. He's like, no, no, you, you, you're going to stay after work and I need you to do this while all these other people go. You can just picture it, right? Whatever it is. And I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to 
double down on it. And I'm going to really show him how to, how to do this. And it's going to take this person by surprise, this evil person, if you will. At the time, they had Roman soldiers that were taking advantage of them, carrying their equipment all over the place. He said, you carry that thing two miles if need be, not just one. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, what do you do? Offer him the second one. How do you do stuff like this? It's easy to teach about, but it's really hard to live out when somebody shames you, talks against you, tries to tear down your name behind your back. That's what it's talking about. Don't give up on them, Jesus says. He said, you've heard it said of the old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now he's telling you that God sees your mind. He knows your thought process. If you heard it said of the old, you shall not hate your brother. But I say to you, even if have, I'm sorry, you shall not murder. But I say to you, even if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder. So who here can stand in front of God spiritually and say you're good enough? And it just keeps on going on. And you realize when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, I don't have what it takes and I probably never will have what it takes in and of myself. And so I must be poor in spirit to recognize that I'm not good enough and I need Jesus to do this. But what's cool about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is echoing back into the law. So as he's sitting there at the Sermon on the Mount and he's teaching these people, they're Jewish disciples who are up there listening. What he's doing is he's calling them back into the Old Testament and he's telling them, I am explaining the Old Testament in New Testament terms now because I'm here. The king is here. And there's going to be a new order, a new way of doing things, but he's not here to abolish the law and the prophets. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm here to fulfill every single one of them. So he's going to take you back into the law. And and there's a picture up here of Mount Sinai. And what's interesting here is on this day when Moses went up to receive the law that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, only one man can go up on that mountain. And that was Moses. On the Sermon on the Mount, how many people went up? Many disciples. And so now it's like what we're going to see is a mass expansion of the kingdom of God and Jesus is going to use many, many people, not just one person. There's not just one Moses. Now it's us. We have that commission that even Moses had to communicate the law, to communicate the gospel to the world like Moses had of those children of Israel that came out of the wilderness or came out of, uh, of Egypt and into the wilderness Right? And but when Moses came down, he had the law. He had 613 commands, but 10 of those were in the Ten Commandments written on stone. And they were written on stone because they were special, if you will. They ended up by the, the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the community. And it was to let you know that nobody is good enough to be accepted by God and you need. A sacrifice. And so on this next slide, you're going to see the tabernacle sitting in the middle of the community with the Shekinah glory that's going up. That's the presence of God. And within that are the commands, the laws that Moses came down with and the Holy of the Holies sitting in there. And the community would be all the way around this tent, this tabernacle in the wilderness. And they would camp and they would always see the presence of God. And they'd always be reminded that this God is amazing He's powerful, he's strong, he 
splits the Red Sea. He, he gives us manna every day. He gives us water from a rock. But he says, you're not good enough. But he provides a way. He provides a way to be good enough. And he gives us this law. And he says, you have to have, in this next slide, it's in Leviticus. And you can read it as the slide comes up. But all through Leviticus, there's these sacrifices. And it says, if the offering is a burnt offering... From the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Could you imagine having to do this? But you look at it, it's a male without defect. That means without a blemish. That means it can't have a broken leg. It can't be blind. It can't have a skin disease. It can't have a broken back. It has to be the best of your herd. It has to be a clean animal. It could be a lamb, a goat, a bull, a heifer, a turtle, whatever this is. This is just one of the offerings. There's many that go on in Leviticus that Moses got from Mount Sinai. But the point being is, is this thing cannot have a defect. It cannot have a blemish. It can't be broken. Why? Why can't it be, right? Because this thing represents who? It's going to be Jesus, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And he is perfect. And it just so happens that because of what the law is going to do, it's going to show our defects. It's going to show our spiritual paralysis, our blindness. We are never going to be good enough. We're always going to be able to, uh, to, to be honest with ourselves and say we're never good and we're breaking the law. And it should break our hearts. And you would have to bring an acceptable sacrifice on this next slide. You would see... Um, I just couldn't imagine doing this. You would have to bring this perfect, innocent animal before the Lord at the tent of meeting, at the entrance, and you would have to put your hand on its head and impart your sin, whatever it was, your trespass, your sin, or your offering to God, and then you would have to cut its neck. You would have to sacrifice it. And then you and the high priest would figure out how to to cut this thing up, and then the high priest would place it on the altar, and this is what would make it an you acceptable before the Lord. This was the only thing that would make you acceptable before the Lord was the blood of this animal, this innocent animal that was perfect. It's the only currency that God would accept. You couldn't go up and say, well, I've been good this week. I'm going to use my own blood. Or I've, I'm, I'm extra good, so God will accept me. No, you had to follow his order and his way. Because this is always going to point to Jesus. Always. So even in the Old Testament, when you come to the gate, you realize, I literally don't have anything to offer God except a sacrifice, which will one day be Jesus. Because we have the defect. And we have to recognize that. And I love the Old Testament because it paints this picture for us very well, doesn't it? You can see it, you can feel it, you can live it. But look what happens as the children of Israel start going on. At the end, about 400 years before John the Baptist come, there is this prophet, we call it the Italian prophet, Malachi. Or Malachi, I'm just messing with you. So Malachi, and look what the children of Israel have gone to. So it says, you've placed defiled food on my altar, but you asked, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible? When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? They're bringing the worst of their flock, like they're better than God or something. 
And God is just like, this is the nature of humankind. This is what we do, right? But it should have never been this because that represents Jesus. And now they're bringing this imperfect animal with blemish. And they're forgetting that they're the ones that have the blemish. They are the ones that have the problem. So when we get into the New Testament now, you can take this slide down. When we get into the New Testament, Jesus is going to preach the gospel of the kingdom and he is going to continue to heal people in miraculous ways. And so it seems like every page that you're turning to, he's going to heal a blind person. He's going to heal a deaf person. He's going to heal a a person that's mute. He's going to heal, heal a paralyzed person. We have some of these really popular stories, like the, the, the blind man at the pool of Siloam. And then Jesus says, go wash your face, wash your eyes, and he can see. And then people are questioning him. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but all I know is I was blind, but now I see. You remember that story? Or about the, man, the, the, the lame man laying next to the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the water to bubble up. And he's like, man, if I can only find somebody to pick me up and put me in this water, right? This living water, supposedly. And Jesus walks by and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just laying here waiting for somebody to pick me up when, this, when the angels stir up this water. And Jesus says, just get up and pick up your mat and go. And the guy literally picks up his mat, folds it up, and he takes off and he goes without any physical therapy. He just takes off and goes. And Jesus sees him in the temple and he says, I told you. Now you can worship God with me here in the temple, not lame. The paralyzed man coming down from the roof. Remember the four friends that brought him? And they lower him down in the roof. And of course, they're wanting him to do what? They wanted him to heal that man of his physical issue of being par- paralyzed. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. That's not why they brought that man there. But Jesus says, so you know that I can forgive this man's sins. Son, pick up your mat and walk away. And he literally picks up his mat. He was paralyzed all of his life. He picks up his mat and he takes off and goes, and everybody is amazed. You have story after story. The woman with the blood who spent all of her money for 12 years on three different physicians and still could not be healed. And she was ostracized from the community. Now she's broke. She's ostracized because of the blood laws. And she says, when I see Jesus, all I need to do is touch the hem of his garment. And boom, her blood stops. At that moment, she became clean. Forget about these, these stories sometimes. We just, just go by them because there's so many. Go, everybody turn to Matthew chapter 15 real fast. As you're doing this, you guys can take this slide down. It's no longer needed. Look at verse 29. It's a little story. It's easy to breeze by. But I want you to do this. Everybody look at me. I want you to turn on that, that video camera in your head and just sort of put yourself there in the scene, will you? Just imagine you're there and you're watching what happens right here. It says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet. He healed them. 
So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and then they all glorified the God of Israel. Could you imagine being here and seeing this as a disciple? That multitudes of people are just breaking in. And they're bringing the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, whatever it is, the demon-possessed, and they're, doing, they're, they're bringing them to the feet of Jesus, and he's touching down, and he's healing them. And then they all get up. The mute starts singing. The deaf can hear, and they're rejoicing. The blind are seeing. What would you do? Like, why is Jesus doing these things? Could you imagine how empowered those disciples must have felt at that time when Jesus was done? He'd be like, Peter, let's go now. And everybody hears Peter belongs to Jesus. Can you imagine just by association how much power you would feel knowing that the guy I follow, the guy I, I learn from knows be my name and I can follow him and he, and he tells me, let's go. I, I just couldn't imagine even having the testimony of being one of these people and the God of the universe touches me and I'm made heal. I'm healed. I'm made well. I mean, there's so many testimonies that can come out of this, this passage, but yet we just breeze by it because, because it's just, there's so many of them. And if you guys don't mind, like, I, like I wasn't healed physically to come to Christ, and probably most of you weren't. You got to a point where you realize, spiritually speaking, you need something more. You're not good enough for whatever it was that God used. And me personally, my story, like I grew up in a, a town in Indiana, a small town, 15,000 people. And I didn't know anybody that really went to church. Um, my family didn't go to church. And it was just, let's just have a good time in life. Let's try to be good. And that didn't work out well for me. The police always seemed to know where I lived. And I realized that, and I had a bit of an ego prideful. I wanted to go explore the world. And one day I wake up out of nowhere, a sunny morning, my junior year of high school, some thought came into my head. I can't, you're going to join the Air Force. I didn't know anybody in the Air Force, but yet I'm going to do it. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to work on airplanes. I want to be a mechanic, whatever it is. And so I joined the Air Force, take off July 5th, 1995, to get yelled at for eight weeks at basic training. It was the worst eight weeks of my life. And I get my assignment. I'm going to work on F-16 fighter jets. At the time, they were really cool, right? And I got this ego, and, I'm going to, and they're going to move me to Germany to do it. And I'm an 18-year-old who loved to party, who loved to have a good time, wanted to see the world, and they send me to Germany. And I had a good time there just traveling around the world and just doing everything. And then after two years came, where do you send a kid who's wayward, who wants to party, who has no really moral compass? Where do you send them to? Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> Stationed at Nellis Air Force Base, working on A-10s, loading bombs on A-10s. And I realized after four years of working on weapon systems and fighter jets, I thought it was cool, but I can't do this. If I were to get out of the Air Force, what job would I get? Like, I can't apply for American Airlines and say, hey, I'll load bombs on your plane, right? <laughs> I hear the Taliban and Al-Qaeda hires for stuff like that, but they have horrible benefits. It's just not where I want to go. And so I decide I'm going to retrain. And I, I, I sign up to retrain and I get satellite operations. I'm going to fly satellites. 
And that just starts, you know, again, stoking my ego. Here I go. I can wear a flight suit and I can work on million dollar satellites. And I go to a, a training base just north of Santa Barbara. And I go in on October 19th, 1999, into a classroom of about 15 other students who are in the same position as me, wanted to retrain out of a different career field. And when you walked into the room, the seating arrangement was like a U or horseshoe. And I picked the far end on the other side at the top of the, of the U, right? And we are sitting there talking, and the instructor's in front of us. Uh, and he's like, we've got to do an icebreaker. And in the military, icebreaker means let's go out and have a good time. Let's go party. And so we're here figuring out what we're going to do on Friday night. We're going to go to San Luis Obispo, and we're going to go to a college town and have a good time and have some drinks. And uh, we needed some designated drivers. And there so happened to be a young 20-year-old with a minivan who was in front. She said, I can drive. Like, great, but we need one more driver. And I hear from, my, from the right side this guy on the corner. He raised his hand. I could see it from my periphery. And he says, I'll drive. I don't really drink. So two thoughts came into my head when he said that. Who's this guy who doesn't like to party? Is he lame? And two, awesome, he's going to drive us. <laughs> and that man ended up being Dan Schwartz, this guy who became critical in my life. He was a believer. And next thing you know, he wants to, be a, he wants to, have, to work out. We're workout partners, and we find out we're going to get stationed together in Colorado Springs, uh, one of the squadrons at Schriever Air Force Base, doing the same job. And we're both young. We, we don't have much rank, and we didn't want to live on base. And so to live off base, you needed a roommate. And then I picked this guy to be my roommate, and I'm completely the opposite of him. I like to have a good time and party, and he's going the church route. And so for like a year, he was like my walking conscience in my house. It's like, what am I supposed to do here? And I was just seeing how he lived for Christ, and it was just so different for me. I just didn't ever, I've never been around somebody like this before. And then he starts going to a church, and he sees they don't have a young adults group, and he starts this young adults group, and he knows I play guitar. He's like, Kent, will you play guitar for our group? And I'm not a believer, but here I am, I'm going in, and I'm singing songs that are Christian, like all in all. Like, I don't know if you remember that song. I'm sitting there singing these songs, like I don't even know what they're about. But I had an ego, and I had a crowd, and so it was great. <laughs> and, you know, when you walk into these old school churches, Baptist churches, you have uh, the guest book, and you're supposed to write your name and fill it out, your name and your address and your phone number, and I did that. And so a couple of weeks later, after I started going, I get a knock at my door on a Tuesday night. And this man knocks on my door, and I open it up, and there he is. He's like, hey, I'm from this church. Can I come in and talk to you? I notice you're not part of our church. I just like to know who you are. And he came in, and he starts telling me the gospel, and I try to prove him wrong. I want to I see if I can really make this guy doubt his faith. And after three hours, this man named Tony came in, and he just leveled me with love but truth. Just going to the scriptures. Kent, you're not good enough. You think you are, but you're just not good enough. This is what the scripture says. And after three hours, he left. And I, I remember going to bed that night and having my very first real prayer to God. God, if you're real, I want to know you. And so somehow I ended up asking this guy at work. I knew he was a Christian. Where do you go to church? Because I wanted a different environment if I went. And he says, hey, I go to this Calvary Chapel. They play good music and they teach the word of God. So I show up. And they're teaching on a Sunday morning out of 2 Samuel. And it's where the ark is being captured by the Philistines. And, and they get these golden hemorrhoids. 
I was like, what do you guys teach? Like, but it's cool because you're actually teaching it where I understand it. And then I came in, I was like, on Wednesday night, I come, and they're in Corinthians where they're talking about SEX. It's like, you guys talk about real stuff here. Like, Christians talk about this stuff, right? And so I was like, this is really unique. And I understood what he was talking about through the scripture. And then on that Saturday, he just picked right back up on 2 Samuel. And he just starts teaching. And he's like, at the end, he gave the altar call in a sense, raise your hand if you know you need Jesus. You're not good enough. You know you need him. And boom, I came to Christ on that day. And it was like I had been blind all my life. And I now could see things differently. I remember it distinctly. I had a different walk about me. It's like I had been paralyzed all my life. And now I have a new walk. Of course, like 15, 19 years later, here I am in Uganda. Can you, that's crazy how I walked there, right? Like I heard things differently, right? I felt things differently. It's like he cleansed me of my spiritual leprosy. Now I can feel And I felt the things of God differently. I felt what it was like for his heart to be broken. And essentially what happened was, is my friend Dan and this guy named Tony just took me and led me to the feet of Christ. That's our mission, right? Because they were in the same position and somebody had dropped them off at the feet of Christ. And then Jesus would heal them. That's what we do as the church. That's what we are as believers because we're all poor in spirit. Once you get that, then you're in the game. But without just admitting your poor in spirit, what strength are you riding on? And so I want to show a video that will parallel this, this, this sermon. And it will, once you see it, you're going to know exactly why I'm, I'm showing it to you. It's a, a physical representation of something that happens spiritually to us. And it's a, it's a father and son, a story, and some of you know it. It's from 1999. It's... It's sort of dated, but it's not a better example. And it's a, a man named Dick Hoyt who had a son named Ricky Hoyt. And I'm going to read this to you, then we'll show the video. It said, Rick was born, Ricky was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt. As a result of oxygen deprivation to Rick's brain at the time of birth, Rick was diagnosed with spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Dick and Judy were advised to institutionalize Rick because there was no chance of him recovering and little hope for Rick to lead a life like any other child. This was just the beginning of Dick and Judy's quest for Rick's inclusion in the community, in the sports, education, and one day he'll actually be in the workplace. In the spring of 77, Rick told his father that he wanted to participate in a five-mile benefit run for a lacrosse player who had been paralyzed in an accident. Far from being a long-distance runner, Dick agrees to push Rick in his wheelchair, and he finished all five miles coming in next to last. That night, Rick told his father, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. This realization was just the beginning of what would become over 1,100 races completed, including marathons, 32 Boston marathons at that, duathlons, triathlons, six of them being an Ironman triathlon. If you don't know anything about the Ironman triathlon, this is what this video is about. It's what it will show. And it's a 2.4 mile swim in open water in the ocean. You get out and you get on a bike and go 112 miles. And then you get off your bike and then you run a marathon, 26.2 miles as he's carrying his son, Ricky. And so I want to show this video. And then when I get up, I'll conclude our message and wrap it up. So please roll the video. Who taught 
Amazing story. Some it's a tearjerker because it's so moving. Because here's what this father would do for the son, and you see the son, the son, the joy on the son's face is just, just something else, isn't it? And we get to this point. If you were to link this into the gospel and this message, just like Ricky, like Ricky, just he knew that it was his father's strength that was going to do this. He knew he felt like when my father does this, it's like my disability just goes away. The last thing that I have to say on this with Ricky, he says, when my dad and I are out there on a run, a special bond forms between us, says Rick, with the help of his computer voice program, and it feels like there is nothing dad and I cannot do. And I love it because it's just a picture of Christ does it for us, And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But we have to get to a point where we can just say, I'm poor in spirit, God. I don't have what it takes. Will you assist me? Will you help me? And the scripture says he wants to have a relationship with us, but it begins at poor in spirit. And when you can get down to this point where you can just say to yourself and to God, I don't have spiritually what it takes, that's where God can work. And that's where he does mighty things. He does great things with our weakness. And so today, as we conclude our message of being poor in spirit, and you see this and you can just use this as an analogy and this parallels to the story of our God and our relationship with him and being poor in spirit, what do you do now? And it's just a simple thing. You just, it beckons us to drop to our knees spiritually and physically and say, God, I'm poor in spirit. And whatever your struggle is today, whatever you're going through, in your little wilderness that you know that God wants to go with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you, he says. And that's truth that we have to bank on as a Christian. And he wants to move in and through our lives. And we come to him and say, I'm poor in spirit. Now, all, everything else comes out of that. And it's a daily thing, not just one time when you got saved. It's a daily thing. And so today, do it. Tomorrow, do it. But to have a relationship with anyone particularly with God, you got to meet with him on a daily basis. And this is where it all starts right here, guys. This is where the power of him is. This is what he works with. And it's just a daily reminder, something you probably already know, just to remind yourself, even tomorrow as you go in, God, I want to come back to my first love. And this is where it all starts right here. This is the gospel. This is where it all begins. So please stand up as we pray. And I I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't received Christ as their Savior and has got to this point that you come and talk to a pastor on staff, if you felt like you've been a little wayward and you've lost it, you lost your path, come. Come to the Lord and pray. If you need prayer for anything else, be down here. I'm going to be in the back there at our banner. I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you before. Um, Give you a flyer about what we do. But man, I just hope that you guys are just blessed today. I hope that um, we can be encouraged to go out and live greater for Christ. Amen. So let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus over us. I pray over this church. I pray over every person that comes or is listening online. I pray, Lord, that this simple truth going back to the basics of Christianity is where we go to every single day. Go to the basics of Christianity. Start where we are supposed to start. And that's completely relying upon you. Lord, forgive us when our egos get in the way. Forgive us when we think we have what it takes. Forgive us when we don't resist that evil person the way you want us to so he can be saved. Forgive us for our thought processes. But we know it all starts at this point of knowing 
that it's your son who's perfect, who's spotless, who takes away our sins and the sins of the world. And Lord, let us start with that truth and let us live that truth out today. In the name of Jesus, amen.